Welcome to Season 3, Episode 15 of the Cedarville Stories Podcast. My name is Sarah Gump. Today on the show is Dr. Matt Bennett. He is an Assistant Professor of Missions and Theology in the School of Biblical and Theological Studies. Listen as Dr. Bennett shares about his transition from life in North Africa and the Middle East to working full-time in Christian higher education. Thanks, Sarah, and welcome to another episode of the Cedarville Stories podcast. I'm Mark Weinstein, and joining me today on the podcast is Dr. Matt Bennett. He is the Assistant Professor of Missions and Theology at Cedarville University. Dr. Bennett joined the faculty in 2017 after serving as a missionary in North Africa and in the Middle East since 2011. Matt and his wife, Emily, have three young children, and they enjoy spending time together outdoors, hiking, camping, or just playing in the backyard. Welcome to the podcast, Matt. It's great to have you on the program. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me. I want to begin our conversation with learning more about your life prior to you coming to Cedarville, because I think that's the heart of your story and where, where your life really uh, is centered. How many years did you serve as a foreign missionary? Yeah, uh, the Lord had us overseas for about seven years. Um, we were serving in a couple different places in North Africa and the Middle East, as you mentioned, and uh, as really put an indelible mark on our family's life and uh, and our heart for the nations. Okay, so I, in talking with you earlier, I know that you met your wife in college. You're both from uh, the Wisconsin area. Um, and then later, after your undergrad, you went to seminary. So you, you got the, the academic training that you wanted or needed. But I'm interested in knowing, how did you discern a call on your life to the mission field? Yeah, well, it's kind of funny in some ways, because uh, it takes me actually back to my my years growing up. I grew up in a, a church that my grandparents actually planted and loving Christian family, uh, had the incredible privilege of a mother and father who walked with the Lord and, and taught my sisters and I to do likewise. And so we were in church every every weekend um, and most of the time throughout the week. Uh, and I remember very vividly getting opportunities to hear from missionaries. And there was this one missionary in particular who would come through every couple of years. And she was, I mean, she was like special ops. She, uh, she talked about smuggling Bibles into the Gaza Strip and was working among uh, Muslim uh, Palestinians. And uh, I remember her stories just always capturing my attention. But I also very vividly remember praying after some of those services saying, Lord, you know, I love what you're doing to make your name known in hard places, but don't ever make me do that. Um, and so that was really where my heart was at growing up. Um, even early on in college, though I had been a Christian, and I think had a saving authentic faith for a long time. Um, I, I still just kind of had this expectation for my life that it was going to be the standard American, you know, get a job, white picket fence, wife and two and a half kids and kind of be the absolute average. Um, but during college, especially a couple of years in, uh, the Lord really grabbed a hold of my heart and started giving me a, a passion for ministry, uh, particularly uh, that came through uh, campus ministry and some of the, uh, the work that my local church was doing at that time opened my heart to ministry. And then very quickly after that, um, started to break down some of those initial hesitancies to even consider missions. And it was during that time that uh, the Lord crossed paths between uh, my wife and I, and uh, we saw that he was doing some of that same common work in our hearts. And uh, as we began to explore that, 
He put Africa on our heart. We went to a, a huge missions conference called the Urbana Missions Conference it's every yep. three years. I think that was um, 2003 that we were there. And he just clarified a number of things for us that we were we were supposed to be willing to go overseas. And we pretty quickly discerned um, that that meant that we were getting married. And so we started praying, okay, Lord, if, if you're drawing our lives together and you're sending us overseas, you got to fill in the details because we can't buy a plane ticket for Africa without some additional information. Uh, orbits won't let us do that. So uh, that really kicked off the process of us trying to say, so what does this look like? What are the details of how we get overseas and what we do there? And the Lord uh, used a number of different things to clarify that for us, but it was a long process of going from 2003, where we sensed the Lord freeing us or calling us to the mission field, and then finally getting boots on the ground at the very beginning of 2011. So there was about a seven-year seven period of seeking the Lord and discerning uh, the steps He would take us along. And so uh, the, the big juncture probably came when, um, uh, when we were working with a college ministry and the Lord kind of freed us from that, saw some other people, uh, raised up as leaders for that. Um, and we began to say, okay, this seems like the time that we're supposed to pursue in earnest some preparation for going overseas that in our minds included uh, getting our Masters of Divinity and being prepared to not just share the gospel wherever the Lord would send us, but actually make disciples and see churches planted. And uh, so that's where we joke that uh, it was the Lord's sovereignty and Google's algorithms that brought us to, <laughs> to Southeastern Seminary because we plugged in three keywords, um, seminary, missions, and cheap. Wow. And uh, those three keywords brought us to Southeastern, which had a program that uh, allows us to get uh, get our Masters of Divinity with half of the time being spent on campus in the States. And then the other half was, um, uh, was a hybrid abroad where uh, our cohort would complete our degree actually on the mission field. And so we went from Africa there to that cohort being focused on, uh, on the, mission, uh, the Muslim world which kind of narrowed it down to North Africa for us. But then then about a year into our time in North Carolina, the church that we became members at decided that they wanted to send a team um, to a specific city in North Africa. And so we went from a continent to a city uh, just by watching the Lord kind of slowly, from our perspective, uh, fill in those details that were missing in 2003. Let me go back into what you just said and, and pick some things out. So um, you mentioned um, when you went to the Urbana Conference, um, I, assume, I assume that was probably in St. Louis back then in 2003? Uh, it was the last one in uh, Champaign-Urbana, actually. Okay, okay, so before we move to St. Louis. Um, uh, you weren't married. So how soon till after that, from that conference did you and Emily get married? Yeah, so the conference kind of straddles the year. I think the last day is usually New Year's Day. So right. uh, I graduated that spring in 2004, and then Emily had another year of college. We got married the year after, uh, or the, uh, the month after she graduated. So it was a, a little over a year and a half after that conference that we got married. Okay, so you got married. You're thinking about missions. You're thinking about seminary. Now, did did both of you um, 
pursue a, a master's degree at Southeastern? We did, yes, um, okay. and that was a, a wonderful experience. We didn't we didn't have any children at that time, so we both worked a couple of part time jobs locally um, and uh, went to school full time. And it was a it was an awesome experience for us to be able to both be preparing because on the mission field, uh, there's no no such thing as a missionary spouse. Like both both husband and wife need to be on the front lines, uh, right? In order to see a whole population reached. And, and you bring a good point there. So not only do you have to be on the same page on the field, but getting to the field, you have to be on the same page. Was there ever any hesitation on your part or Emily's part that? Uh, maybe we shouldn't do this. Maybe we should do something else. Um, uh, Emily was uh, was chomping at the bit uh, long before I was. Uh, she came into her college career thinking she was either going to be an actress or a missionary, and uh, actress dried up pretty quickly. <laughs> uh, but uh, she she long had a heart for uh, for the nations, and the Lord was doing that work even before we met. In my heart, of kind of loosening my grip uh, and allowing me to. Uh, to recognize that I needed to be willing to say yes to whatever the Lord would ask of me. Right. So let's let's continue with the story. So now you're you've completed your work at Southeastern, at least in the states. Now you're going to, to be a missionary. What was it like for you and your wife um, to be living in a very difficult situation uh, where Jesus is not uh, accepted freely? What was it like, uh, just personally and spiritually? Well, uh, especially once we got into the, the country that we had longed to be in for the whole time, uh, that's another issue in and of itself, because we got rerouted for a, the first couple of years to uh, okay. sort of a place of holding pattern um, uh, because of some of the political realities in the region. Um, we got in and uh, spent about five years in North Africa in a country that during those five years had four different governments. Um, there were kind of two major coups, um, well, coups or, okay, um, okay. Uh, there's more positive words for it, but I think that's probably appropriate, that that occurred while we were there, which really, I mean, it just, it made the whole environment unstable, uh, whether that was economics uh, for the people around us who were really struggling to make ends meet in the midst of chaos, or whether that was... Um, even even danger. Um, one of the groups that quickly came to power after the first revolution uh, was uh, was a somewhat radical uh, Muslim group, and uh, actually got to the point of having a president who was representative of them in the the country, and uh, that that really caused a lot of fear at times for some of our Christian friends and the native. Christian population, and uh, it wasn't unjustified. I mean, there were churches being burned fairly regularly, bombings, um, people being dragged out of known Christian businesses and beaten in the streets simply for their faith. And so it was a it was a heavy time of recognizing the the ugliness of a, a sin stained world and the, the fact that there is. Uh, there is an enemy of the gospel, and he is at work um, in a place where the gospel still needs to be. Um, but at the same time, the Lord used that time for us to uh, continue to develop a compassion for particularly that Muslim community that was 
so set against the gospel because at the end of the day, those are people who are created in God's image, who are created to offer him pleasing worship. And our desire was to say, look at, this is such an opposite, uh, an opposite approach, at least within these extremist groups of what, what will bring you ultimate satisfaction on like the, the gospel and the, the plea for them to, to come and receive the gospel was made all the more pressing on us. As we saw, we saw what paths sin leads people yeah. down. Yeah. You, you talk about uh, a sin stained world. We see that every day in our streets here in the United States with the, the riots and the protests and the violence. So, as we're listening to this podcast, uh, we can understand that now more, more freely than we could maybe before all this happened in the United States. But as as a missionary now, and as a as a person who is cultivating a heart for the Muslim people, um, how difficult is it to go against tide in such a hostile environment to know know what you need to do and know what you want to do to share the gospel? How, how difficult is that? Well, that's one of the things uh, that I'm really passionate about speaking about to my students and to anybody who will listen here in the States is that, you know, we oftentimes think of those more radical expressions of Islam uh, because those are the ones that make the news. And we assume that there's a lot of difficulty in living in a Muslim majority country to present the gospel. But the reality is um, the vast majority of Muslims that we met we're not of that radical bend. The vast majority are just people who are living their lives and who are doing so through a, a an Islamic shaped worldview. Um, and so they're they're a people who aren't necessarily dead set against us. And in fact, because of their Islamic worldview, they're primed and ready to talk about spiritual things. Um, so in a lot of ways, uh, you ask. How hard was it to have those conversations about the gospel? Man, it was a lot easier in the Middle East to have spiritual and gospel-centered conversations with our Muslim friends than it is to go into a Starbucks here and have the same sort of conversation. Just because uh, there's no such thing in the Muslim world as the division between sacred and secular. Um, everything is charged with religious value and meaning. And so the opportunity to seize on any normal conversation and see it transition into a conversation about the differences in our, in our understanding of the world was, uh, I mean, it was, it was simple to, to say the gospel, communicating the gospel is a different thing, but, uh, having those conversations was actually really easy. Yeah. I, um, in, in a similar vein, um, not that we do it very well, but I know my wife and I, we live, um, west of Cedarville, and um, some of our neighbors are Sikhs. We have great conversations with them. I mean, we don't present the gospel point blank a lot, maybe, but we we love on them, and we develop, I mean, probably our our closest friends in our neighborhood are Sikhs, and they have two little boys, and we love them dearly. And it's, you know, we just plant the seed. Hopefully, we we plant the seed. And that's what you were doing on the mission field, and and sharing the gospel more more uh, more boldly than probably was, but I'm gonna transition to um, away from the mission field to your time of coming to Cedarville. So in 2017, you joined the faculty. Walk me through how this new ministry opportunity was presented to you, and why did you decide to transition from missions to Christian higher education, specifically at Cedarville? So uh, the the desire to be in 
Christian higher education was something that really came through my own time at seminary and my time in pursuing uh, my PhD, just seeing men and, and women uh, who were in positions of, of teaching, who had so much influence over my own understanding of the gospel, my walk with the Lord. Um, uh, I know that there's the, the common joke that people who go to seminary are actually going to cemetery um, because that's where their faith actually becomes cold and dead. That was the polar opposite of my experience. Um, I just saw the Lord open up a whole new area of my discipleship as I explored the scriptures and uh, was taught how to read them and to understand them. And more than that, to understand the God who is is with us and who is speaking through his word. And so for me, it was really something that uh, shaped my own discipleship and gave me a desire at some point to be in the classroom. That And that's what led me to do my PhD in the first place. Uh, now, I didn't know what that would look like at the time and expected that might be an investment in something far down the road. But uh, as the Lord walked, walked us uh, step by step through our time, it was another sort of funny moment because in 2016, my wife and I looked at each other and we said, you know what, for the first time in about five and a half years of, of ministry, we really feel like we know what we're supposed to be doing and we're we're content and we we feel like we can see the traction that uh that our work is is getting here on the field and about six months after that we also look back at each other and we're like hey we're, we're both still satisfied but at the same time we're seeing about five different areas of our lives converging showing that there's something on the other side something of a transition that the lord's preparing us for we don't know what that's going to look like. And so we kind of assumed that it would be a transition on the field, maybe to a different city, a different position, something of that nature. Um, but we really, we didn't know what it would look like. And so at that point, we were at uh, sort of our, our best emotional state in, ter in terms of the, the work on the field. But we committed to just setting aside a, a weekend a month to, to pray and, and fast and ask the Lord to bring clarity to some of these upcoming transitions. We pushed on a, a number of different doors on the field uh, that kind of presented themselves different ways that we could have uh, shifted gears to, uh, to accommodate some of those streams of change that were coming. And uh, each one of those, the Lord just shut the door uh, for various reasons. And so we had our church, we had our, our team, and we had our leadership all kind of speaking affirmation that they saw changes coming for us. But uh, all the different things that we tried to adapt uh, ended up being closed doors. And it was literally the day after we had um, turned down one particular option that had been put in front of us that I got a phone call from my, at the time, PhD supervisor, uh, Bruce Ashford who had just come back from speaking uh, a couple day conference at Cedarville University. And uh, he said, hey, do you know anything about this Cedarville University place? They're looking for somebody to teach missions and theology. I know you're passionate about those, the intersection of those two disciplines, and I think it would be a good fit. Let me know if you're interested. And so it was really at that moment that we saw, we saw the Lord putting something in front of us that a, we didn't expect in this timing, but also which corresponded to us trying 
to adapt to some of the situations in front of us and, and seeing those doors closed. So we said, Lord, we're going to push on this door uh, because we think it would be irresponsible to to not consider this as potentially something that you're doing. Uh, but if it's not right, keep that door closed. Uh, as as he saw fit, he he allowed us to to transition. And, what, and there was no hesitation uh, on on your part or Emily's part to to push, keep pushing on that door, uh, knowing that you you're gaining traction where you are, and you know what you're finally doing, and it's going well. Well, it just it was such a clear sequence of things that we both said we would be in sin not to not to walk this out um you know and that was that was interesting because in lower times throughout our time on uh, on the field we would have you know talked about well what would it look like if we transitioned back home and every time we talked about it both of us kind of said man we would we would feel so guilty like we were throwing in the towel like we were giving up like we were not doing what the lord called us to do and so i always assumed that if the lord brought us back home there would be a sense of really being racked with guilt throughout it. But in his kindness, because it was so clear, I just I haven't had that experience. It just seemed like he laid it out and said, this is the way, walk in it. It was obvious to you guys. Um, at this point, though, you also have at least two two children, right? Did, did that play a role in this decision? We had three kids, yep. Um, okay, three. That was one of the streams of consideration that our oldest was getting to the point of, uh, us having to make some decisions about schooling, and uh, the options were uh, were not not great options. And staying home and homeschooling was one of the ones we were considering. But uh, one of the pinches that that uh, presented to us was saying, well, if we're going to be out here and we're going to be also investing our time in homeschooling, that's effectively reducing probably one of us from being engaged in the ministry that we both came out to do. So uh, that was one of those streams of consideration for us, yeah. So since you've been at Cedarville, at least my research says, you've written a book called The 40 Questions About Islam. I was going to ask you, you know, that, that seems like an interesting book, given how difficult it can be to share your faith, but you've already refuted that, that that's not true. It's rather easy. So what was the motive behind writing this book? Well, let me let me go back and nuance that a little bit. It's actually very easy to have spiritual conversations and to speak the gospel with a Muslim, but actually communicating the gospel so that they hear it and understand that's a that's a much more difficult process. And so it really was um, uh, born. That book was born out of the the desire to see, uh, particularly people in the West here, understand that their Muslim neighbors are people right and uh to be engaged and honestly some of the loveliest people that i've met and so i want to encourage westerners to to just have that posture of wanting to engage their muslim friends but at the same time i wanted to point to some of those key aspects of islamic theology and, and worldview that might even use the same language that we would use things like creation sin and Jesus and Abraham and uh, and even salvation, um, those sorts of ideas that are used and referred to within Islam, but actually function very differently um, because those are the keywords that we're going to want to use as we're sharing the gospel. But if we don't realize that they're being received with a, 
uh, with the baggage of an Islamic worldview, uh, it's going to it's going to limit our ability to to actually effectively communicate. So that's why I wrote the book. Okay. So, as someone who loves missions and theology, what would you say is at the core the core reason why us Westerners struggle with sharing our faith, sharing the gospel? Is it is it that we really don't love well, or what? What would you say is what keeps us from sharing our faiths? Faith. Man, I think. I think there's layers of things. I think the uh, most superficial layer is that we don't like confrontation and uh, we're Mm -hmm. sort of uh, raised to think that anything that would point out disagreement with somebody is an expression of of hatred or bigotry. And so any sort of confrontation between two worldviews where we're making exclusive claims that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, uh, that just goes against the warp and woof of what we're trained by our society to think um, is appropriate in terms of interactions with people. And I think, honestly, there's there's an individualism that says, well, I've got the gospel and my eternity is secure. And, you know, I'm, I'm content with that. And maybe sometimes we might be motivated by a, a speaker or you know some sermon to say I really need to share the gospel, but then we go out and we do that as a an activity rather than as part of the overflow of who we are. So we might check that box, but we're not necessarily waking up in the mornings praying, Lord, cross my path with somebody who needs to hear because this beautiful message of salvation is not something just for me to enjoy, but it's something to shape my life by. Uh, so I think. There's those two realities, and then at the heart of it, sometimes if you scratch if you scratch beneath the the surface, I don't know that we really believe, at least not in such a way as to shape our lives, that there is an eternity that hangs in the balance. Um, I think we we oftentimes think, well, at the end, maybe maybe there's another way, and. Maybe the Lord will be gracious, and and I don't need to intervene. Yeah, I know um, the ten years I've been at Cedarville, my life has continued to transform more toward a heart of loving people and sharing my faith in different ways. My wife does it much better than I do, but it it uh, to me it comes down to being intentional and just being transparent and real, and realizing that. Like as you said, everyone is created in God's image. So there's no one better than one another. And if you realize, which we should, that there's a lot at stake here for people if they don't know Christ. And if I know that if I have the remedy, it's up to me. I should. I need to. I want to share that remedy with with the people. And I don't do it nearly enough. And I think the other piece of that, um, one of the things that I, I try to present with students when they're talking about, you know, why should I go to the mission field? There is a right and proper burden for the lost saying, man, anyone who's lost, whether that's in the Middle East or in Dayton or in Cedarville, um, anyone who is lost is throttling towards a Christless eternity. And that is a devastating reality that we need to wrestle with. But I think the the other side of that coin, and maybe the one that's even more important, is recognizing that there is a God of the universe who has created everyone, and there are some who are denying him the worship that he's worthy of. And so 
that dual compulsion to mission of saying not only is this the best thing for this person, but it is also the most right thing in the universe to be turning back allegiance to the one who's worthy of it. Um, that that dual compassion should be part of our uh, our impetus to uh, to evangelism. Yeah, thanks for thanks for sharing that. Uh, we just have a few minutes left on the podcast. I, I wish we had more time because it's been delightful for me just to um, hear you talk, and, and uh, I'm really encouraged. Um, if you're if you're an example of, of the Bible faculty that we have at Cedarville University, and I know you are, um, our students are um, are blessed. So thank you for, for coming to Cedarville. But and as you think of your time at Cedarville, um, what are some aspects that truly connect with your heart and mission? that gets you excited about this place? Uh, I would say, first of all, it's it's our students. Um, our students have come here because they have the vision for coming to a school that is shaped by the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. And uh, I think that there's a lot of students across campus who come into my office as a missions prof, and they're not studying Bible but they're not studying Bible because they're trying to prepare themselves, equip themselves with a vocation that could take them anywhere around the world. So maybe some nurses or some engineers who are coming to prepare themselves uh, to be able to go into hard places in order to bring the gospel there. And so I, I love that mission is already part of the heartbeat of Cedarville and particularly its student population. And then the thing that gets me most excited about what I get to do in there is that we've developed a, um, an advanced standing MDiv, particularly with these sorts of students in mind, where a student might finish a four-year degree as a nurse or as an engineer or in business, but then if they've taken some electives along the way in Bible, they can qualify for this advanced MDiv in which they can get a full MDiv in two years, and they could even focus on missiology so that they can go to the field, bring a skill, have a, a meaningful way to gain access to a closed country, but then go, go with the equipping, not only for their vocation, but also for their calling as a missionary to be able to lay the foundation for seeing the gospel proclaimed, disciples made, and churches planted in that place. Yeah, you raise a good point. It doesn't matter... Um what our students are being trained in, whether it's nursing, engineering, political science, um, we all have, that, that's, that's our entree to whatever we're going to do, but it, it gives us an op opportunity to share the gospel in those, those uh, walks of life. We don't have to be called to be a, quote-unquote, a missionary um, in those professions uh, to share the gospel. Um, I have time for two more questions, and they're, they're more personal uh, toward, in nature. With three small children, seven, six, and four, for. Okay. How has your family been able to deal with COVID-19? Because I, I, I saw your children this week at the pharmacy, and they're pretty uh, rambunctious and high energy. <laughs> they are. Uh, the Lord gave us a big backyard, um, which is, is helpful. So they have been uh, enjoying the outdoors. We've had you know, a lot of things to complain about in 2020, but here in Ohio, we've actually had a pretty good year for weather, so they've been able to enjoy it. Um, and then on our block, there are a number of families with kids generally in the same age range. And that has been such a blessing to our family uh, to plug into the, the small town life here in Cedarville, but to do so in a way that uh, we've just been folded into relationships naturally with those families. And so our kids have actually 
enjoyed some of the COVID situation because on the block, they've been able to at least see their friends outside and uh, not have to be in school from their perspective uh, you know, for the last, what, uh, I don't know how long this has been going on, since March. Since March. March, September. Yeah, right, so. yeah. Well, this, this program's airing in October, so it's been a while. Um, okay. My last question, Matt, uh, I ask this often to our guests. What is the Lord teaching you right now as you study his word, as you teach, as you go about life? What is he teaching you right now? I think the uh, ongoing conviction of the fact that I am desperately in need of the Lord uh, to be uh, to be fruitful in anything that he puts before me is, is one of the ongoing lessons, um, especially a few years into Cedarville uh, life and feeling like I'm starting to get my feet under me and maybe teaching classes for the second time, the temptation to, uh, to say, oh, I've, I've been here before, uh, I know how this goes, uh, is increasing. And so just realizing that every, every day in the classroom is an opportunity to be investing in making disciples, well, that shifts it away from just teaching the same material to saying, oh, I'm desperately dependent on the one who has made a disciple of me to help use me to make disciples of these students so that they might make disciples around the world. Um, and so that, I would say that has been, that has been the consistent lesson over the last, well, the last nine months at this point, especially uh, just a desperate need for the Lord. Yeah. Thanks for sharing. And uh, you know, when you said you're starting to gain, uh, I, I heard you say maybe traction or a, a firm understanding of, you know, what you're doing here. It took me back to your time on the, on the mission field. So, when you got that feeling back in the missions field, the Lord opened Cedarville. So I pray that he doesn't open any other doors, that he gives you a long ministry here at Cedarville, because you're just a, a joy to be with. I, I know that the students love uh, learning from you, and thank you for building into their lives, and I look forward to seeing you on campus soon. That's such a privilege. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time to, to let me chat with you. Appreciate it. I enjoyed it, uh, and uh, God bless. Thanks, Matt. Yeah, thanks, Mark. Thank you for listening to Cedarville Stories Podcast, brought to you by Cedarville University. If you were encouraged by this conversation, like I was, please share this episode with a friend. If you know of an awesome Cedarville story, share it with us. We would love to showcase how God is at work in the Cedarville family. And be sure to come back next week when we'll hear another Cedarville story for God's glory.